Coming up on today's show, we'll get an Alberta perspective on the disaster in Turkey and Syria. We'll also talk about the Alberta Law Society voting to keep continuing education rules in place. And why does the government spend millions of dollars advertising on the very same social media platforms they're trying to regulate? To the latest now on um, just this absolutely catastrophic situation happening in Turkey and neighboring Syria. Search teams and emergency aid groups are responding from all around the world. There are a number of groups that are on their way. Some of them are are already there, um, including from the Los Angeles County Fire Department. They have a team, you know, Los Angeles. They've done extensive training. They're ready, on their way, and uh, they know the time is short. We've all seen after other disasters like Mexico City, the earthquakes in Nepal, sometimes two, three, four, five days later, we're going to be pulling people that are alive out of the rubble. And that's what these men and women are going to do. Yeah, so those miraculous rescues do happen, and we're hoping we see we see many of those. Um, there's about 25,000 emergency personnel working in Turkey right now. Uh, it's, it's a desperate situation. This is ABC's Marcus Moore. Right now, rescuers are at the site of an eight-story apartment building that collapsed during the quake. They have pushed us back as searchers sift through the debris, some of them with their bare hands in a bucket, moving bricks and concrete, searching for any signs of life. And right now, they are in the most critical hours as they search for survivors. Yeah, and it's being made all the harder due to uh, the weather conditions, freezing temperatures, some snow, some rain. Uh, it's been uh, awful in that regard. The death toll, the latest number is 5,300. But again, um, it, it's fully understood that that's just the beginning and, and tragically it will continue to rise. Um, the damage spread out over a very, very wide area into two different countries. Um, and then there's been the aftershocks. It's um, it's a really desperate situation. And there's a large number of uh, Albertans with deep ties to that part of the world, both in Turkey and in Syria. Uh, and uh, we're going to get sort of a look at what those communities have been dealing with over the last 36 hours or so and uh, what kind of information they've been managed to glean and if they managed to get contact with their loved ones. So we're going to start with Sirhan Tarkin, who is president of the Turkish Canadian Cultural Association of Calgary. Sirhan, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. I thank you for having me on. Thank you. Uh, to start, tell us about your your personal ties to, to that part of the world. Do you have family, friends, loved ones in the affected areas? Yes, so I have um, a lot of friends and family. Most of my family is in Istanbul and and, and in the uh, northwest part of Turkey. So this is a southeast oil-rich part of Turkey, which is uh, uh, which is also a commonality. I actually lived in that area for a while because my dad was in oil, of course, and that's why we're, I'm in Calgary and I have been for most of my life. But uh, so, yeah, it's the oil. It's where the oil is, really. But unfortunately, it's also the poorer part of uh, Turkey. So you've got lots of uh, tall buildings, but not done to today's standards. Um, so I was listening to the news this morning. Over 10,000 buildings they've counted yeah. are down and turned into rubble. So we have members who have uh, about, I've counted about 20 members who have still yet to make uh, contact with some of the loved ones. Uh, of course, cell phone towers are down, mm-hmm. um, and so we're kind of dealing with all of this, and uh, uh, it, it, it really is unbelievably uh, big catastrophe over there. In terms of establishing that communication, making contact, I mean, is it possible? Have there been people, like like you say, I mean, the infrastructure's been so heavily damaged in that part of the country. Is it possible to make contact? Have some people been able to? 
Well, some some people have. In the okay. first few hours of the earthquake, actually, it was it was a little bit easier. It happened at 4 a.m. in the morning, of course, to local time over there. So uh, some people were able to. But uh, as time goes on, of course, it just the fears get worse and worse. And uh, I heard um, the uh, uh, Los Angeles uh, reported there saying that, yeah, I remember 1999 earthquake in Istanbul. People were pulled out four days after. Yep. There was a child that was pulled out four days after. So these are critical hours, these next a uh, couple of days, uh, these are critical hours where, of course, there's still people trapped. I'm hearing of WhatsApp messages being uh, sent over saying that I'm still under the rubble. Of, uh, here's my address, you know, trying to send locations and things like that. It just is unbelievable. Um, we're quite uh, overwhelmed by all of this. Yeah, I saw the same stories that, uh, you know, social media just flooded by people saying, this is my location, please come get me. It's just, it's heartbreaking to hear. Um, like you said, Istanbul went through a, a major earthquake uh, about 25 years ago. Um, yeah. Tell us about this region of Turkey that's been affected. Like you say, it's oil producing, not um, as as wealthy as, as Istanbul. How heavily populated is it? What's the geography like? What What's the infrastructure like there? Yeah, so you're going through 11 provinces. This is the this is a fault line and so we're talking about you know many many I, i've never seen an earthquake with this sort of a uh this distance and you know we have a lot of our our members are here geologists and whatnot of course working in in calgary and and several of them have called me and said sihan this is a this is an earthquake that happens once every 500 years yeah. you know there's you you may have heard on other media that they're talking about you know castles that are 2000 years old turning into rubble just because it's uh you know they've not not seen anything like this so uh, the topography is, you know, you don't get a lot of tall buildings, but where there have been tall buildings in the cities, of course, uh, some of them have fallen. There's some amazing images of, you know, everything was standing, and then there's a few that have turned into rubble. So, you know, we just kind of have to get out there and help as much as we can. Of course, we're there's about 2,500 Turks in Calgary, I think about 35 in Edmonton, 100, 3,500 in Edmonton. We're all trying to sort of uh, put our best efforts together so we can uh, do the best, uh, you know, uh, help out in the best way we can. Um, and that's well, that, that's sort of our focus right now, you know. Yeah, and, uh, I, and, and we hear from people all the time saying, what can we do to help? What, what are you recommending? I know there's a group I'm going to mention later, uh, the Humanitarian Coalition, but are there other efforts underway in Alberta? Yeah, so we've, uh, we've started a GoFundMe page. We're over, you know, just over $7,500, which we're hoping Justin Trudeau will kind of, uh, Gosh. as usually is the case. Yeah, Red Cross will kind of come up. So yeah. we're kind of holding it until we get a, so we can double our efforts that way. I know Turkish Airlines, uh, the, uh, consul has reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, get us a package together. Uh, you know, so we, they, they're flying cargo free to, from Vancouver to Istanbul and then to be distributed down there. Um, you know, yesterday I had lots of people call Calling me, you know, saying diapers and that kind of thing. I mean, those are all well intended and they will be needed, but I think nothing gets there faster than money. Gotcha. So we've concentrated our efforts the best we can to get that GoFundMe started. So if anybody's interesting, you know, interested in this, the Turkish Canadian Cultural Association of Calgary's uh, GoFundMe page, we're going to make sure it gets to the right places um, because there's a lot of, I mean, as much as. Uh, of course, everybody wants to help. There's a lot of places their help hasn't even gone to yet. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to uh, follow that story and, 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 you know, hopefully we're, we're trying to get to the places that we, we can get to as well. I'm hearing the weather is a big factor in the rescue efforts. It's very cold. There's been some snow. There's been some rain. What are you hearing about? I mean, is, is it seasonable? Is it, is it normal weather conditions for this time of year? And how bad has it been? 
Yeah, so, so there are reports that it's minus, it's been minus 10. Well, for Turkey, it's pretty cold, you know, for that part yeah, of the world. Yeah. Minus 10, of course, we kind of uh, giggle at that, but uh, minus 10, you know, being stuck under rubble uh, overnight would uh, would certainly be, you know, without much hope or despair, you know, it, it would be enough to, you know, uh, probably do you in. So uh, it has been, uh, it's, it's not unseasonable. I mean, you know, they're used to that. It's just they're not used to it being every year. You know, you get a yeah. snowfall once every four years. Right, so it's not that they've never seen this this cold. It's just that uh, you know, obviously, all the earthquake uh, efforts are being hampered by the fact that uh, it is cold at the moment and it's snowing, which again only happens once every few years. In terms of those recovery efforts, I, I was interested to read that you know there's about twenty five thousand emergency personnel. But you know, like we've said, there's been earthquakes in that region before, so they they're. I don't want to say used to it, but they are, are prepared, I would think, and do have some rapid response teams that are, are now doing the work. It's not like this is something they've never seen before. So that has to be somewhat reassuring, right? It is somewhat. Um, the problem is, you know, localization. I mean, it's just, of course, you can't predict these earthquakes. Right, yeah. the, the scientists have been telling us for many years it's going to come. But the thing is, as soon as it happens, does A go to B to C? You know, like it has to be a domino effect. And right now, what I'm hearing from the people on the ground over there, and they're sending me messages, is that uh, unfortunately, some places they are getting the um, attention and qu- quickly, and other poorer parts or parts that are a little bit further away mm-hmm. um, are not. So, you know, the word is to, of course, try and get that out um, as much as possible, as quickly as possible, because. You know, the people who have died, unfortunately, have already passed, but the people who are still under rubble, who can still be saved, are the ones that we have to kind of focus on. And then even after that, once the three, four, five days is up, how about the people who are now displaced? I mean, I, I've yeah. heard of stories of people like, obviously, have to sleep in cars. They can't go, even if your building is standing, you're not, you're told you're not, you can't go back, you know, and to stay warm in, you know, zero degree temperatures, uh, overnight. And then, uh, you know, for the next few days till you get more help, it, it all all of this is, is just, of course, very overwhelming. Um, so that, that's sort of the issue we're dealing with at the moment. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, Sirhan, I, I can't thank you enough for, for joining us this morning. And, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine what you and the community are going through right now. So our thoughts are with you, and uh, I appreciate your time. Perhaps we'll do an update uh, a little Please later in the do, week. do, and that would be my wish. Thank you so much for this uh, time to speak to you. But uh, if you could just follow up with us in a few days, I think that would be best for everyone as well. Yeah, we will book it for sure. We'll We'll have a chat a little later in the week. Thank you, Sirhan. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Bye-bye. You too. That is Sirhan Tarkin, who is president of the Turkish-Canadian Cultural Association of Calgary. And as I said, you know, help's on the way. And there's already 25,000 uh, emergency rescue personnel on the ground working that, you know, are based in Turkey. Uh, and you've also got the international efforts are coming. So, but as Sirhan said, that window, you know, you're getting into the critical hours now. And every hour that goes by, the chances of those miraculous recoveries get smaller and smaller and smaller. So... You know, urgency is is the name of the game right now. Um, in terms of helping, I know a lot of people do want to help. Chorus is supporting the Humanitarian Coalition, which is a group uh, of 12 Canadian age aid agencies that have all come together uh, and have done it before in times of other major humanitarian crises. Uh, they, they band together. It's the Humanitarian Coalition. And if you just put that into your web browser, you'll, you'll find it. Um, and as he said, cash is the most effective way to do this. 
the humanitarian coalition is a way that you can do that. So if you're looking to help, we're waiting to hear if the government will match. Typically they do with Red Cross, things like that. No announcement from the government yet. But right now, uh, if you're looking to help immediately, humanitarian coalition is a good place to start. We'll get the Syrian side of this situation when we come back. Just before the news, we were talking about how to help um, in terms of relief efforts for Syria and Turkey. I uh, mentioned that the humanitarian coalition is up and running. If you go to their website, that's 12 Canadian aid agencies that come together when there's a massive humanitarian crises like this and, and sort of work together and coordinate their efforts to make sure the aid gets where it needs to go. That's a good place to start. It was just announced by the Prime Minister over Twitter that... Um, the Canadian government will be offering some immediate aid. Justin Trudeau on Twitter said, After yesterday's devastating earthquakes, we are providing $10 million in immediate aid to the people of Turkey and Syria and will continue to provide support as the situation evolves. Our partners are already distributing food, emergency fuel, and shelter items. So $10 million, uh, in emergency aid, immediate aid from the Canadian government, uh, waiting to see if they will be matching donations made by Canadians. That's something that typically happens, so uh, we'll bring you word on that. As we said, uh, the window gets smaller and smaller for rescue and it slowly but surely it sadly turns to a recovery effort but those miraculous stories are starting to emerge listen to this one this is from syria um a northwest syrian town discovered a crying infant whose mother had given birth to the child while buried under the rubble of a five-story apartment building that was leveled completely leveled by the earthquake the newborn girl was found in the debris with the umbilical cord still connected to her mother who had passed away. The baby was, in fact, the only survivor from her family from the building that collapsed on Monday in the small town of Jindaris, right on the Turkish border. I mean, unbelievable, unbelievable. A brand new baby rescued from the rubble. Sadly, the mother passed away, but um, those are the kind of stories that we're going to continue to hear more and more about. So let's find out there's some deep ties. You know what? Syria has been through and you know how Canada stepped up and how many Syrian refugees arrived in Alberta and the work that Albertans did to welcome them. There's some deep ties to that part of the world here in Alberta. So uh, it, it's got to be just a heart-wrenching time for them. We're going to chat now with Marwa Kobe, who is executive director of the Syrian Canadian Foundation. Marwa, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much, Jay, for having me and shedding light on the situation in Syria and Turkey now. Yeah, it is just, uh, it's heart-wrenching. It really is. It's, yeah. uh, um, your personal situation, if, if you don't mind telling me, do you have loved ones in, in the affected areas? I mean, what, what are you going through personally? Well, yesterday was a really tough day on me on a person level and my team members as well. Half of my team are newcomers themselves. Um, they uh, they have family members in Turkey and in Syria and some are in Lebanon as well. I had cousins that I, for hours, I didn't know anything about them. We were just waiting for any news to see if, if they made it, if they're alive. So um, I'm happy that at least we were able to get in touch with them. But yeah. I have many family friends where we still don't know if, if they made it or not. Um, in terms of establishing contact, I'm, I'm just wondering, like prior to the earthquake, we know what Syria has gone through with the, with the war that's ravaged that country for so many years. What was it like before the earthquake? 
So um, that's actually one of the points that I wanted to share with you. Thank you for asking that important question. To share some context with the audience and listeners who are tuning in, uh, to be honest, it's been an ongoing war zone in Syria since 2012. And uh, in the beginning, it kind of uh, started with a war outbreak in different cities in Syria when many Syrian families were forcibly displaced to leave their home due to bombing and attacks seeking a safe place in different cities in Syria. And then after that, of course, the situation escalated and many of these families had to leave the country and seek refuge in the neighboring countries of Syria like Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan. Mm-hmm. And that's where the Syrian refugee crisis happened. And sadly, since then, it became one of the largest refugee crises around the world, resulting over 13 million Syrian refugees. And 6.8 are internally displaced within Syria. And when within these 6 million, we have 2.9 who are currently in the uh, west, um, in the northwest of Syria, where sadly the earthquake happened. So prior to the earthquake, their situation is, of course, devastating. And after what happened, you just feel like these people are going from one crisis to another. That particular region of Syria, I know different parts of the country were affected to different extents. The, the, the area hardest hit by this earthquake, what kind of conditions were people living in there? Was the infrastructure intact? Were they in, were in the refugee camps like you talked about? I mean, what was the situation prior to the earthquake? Well, uh, before that, they were literally living as refugees right. within their own country, yeah. their own home, which is more like it's it's terrifying and it's a horrible situation. They were neglected by they neglected by the government. They don't have enough resources. Majority of these families are um, single mothers and children. They don't have access to education. They don't have access to food, shelters, or um, any medical relief. So after the earthquake happened, that's where uh, many grassroots organizations and local organizations on the ground are trying to focus on that area, just to be able to help them because many of them lost everything now. We, we, thousands of families are still under the rubble. They don't even have the equipment. Um, many of, of my family friends are saying they don't even have ropes to take out the people. They're Goodness. literally just losing, using their hands because they don't have any tools to help them. Yeah, we were just talking about the situation in Turkey and the, and the tens of thousands of people that are already in place and working, and I've seen, you know, large machinery. I mean, with the years of war that's happened in Syria, uh, it's it's drastically affecting the rescue efforts by the sounds of it. It's just the infrastructure isn't there. No, not at all. Everything is on the ground. Now, uh, one of the the small buildings that they, they, they had there, everything is now on the ground. Yeah. And they lost even their tents, not to mention the freezing weather that they're going through. There was a snowstorm two two days before the earthquake happened. So many of these families were literally on the street. They had nowhere to go. Um, and now they're just trying their best to, uh, many organizations are providing yeah. them with blankets and uh, food and winter jackets just until they can make it through and, and hopefully we can get some tents for them uh, so they can basically sleep in. Uh, in terms of what's going on within the community here in Alberta, how big is it? There's a number, right? And, and relative newcomers as well with what gone, went on in Syria uh, in the past, you know, five, ten years. Um, what, what is the community doing to try and rally around and, and, and support um, the people of Syria? They're really trying their best to, to be honest, focus on now raising funds. They're trying to yeah. partner with international organizations um, and uh, local organizations on the ground to be able to send medical relief, uh, food and blankets and jackets for and water. Water is, is of course, um, needed there. Um, finally, today we have found like trucks of an organization called Mudham Team. Uh, they're trying their best to um, cross the borders from Turkey to Idlib, which is northwest Syria, to provide uh, um, them with food 
and and the winter blackouts for them. So when we hear about the international groups that are heading over, I know that we had some audio earlier from L.A. County. Uh, their rescue crews were heading over. Uh, I hear a lot of people heading to Turkey, but it is it is crossing the border into Syria as well. It's not being completely forgotten by the international effort. Well, we're hoping that's what we're trying to advocate yeah, yeah. because we know that in terms of Turkey, um, uh, we're happy that they're able to get international support. But we are focusing on also Syria because yeah. again, they're neglected by the government. It's, it's, it gets really uh, challenging to to access these resources for the families. But um, um, we're really blessed that when many of these organizations, like the White Helmets and Munham team, they're on the ground. We're in touch with them. They're able to uh, provide all the resources resources needed by uh, general generous fund. Um, donations from people here in Canada and community members, because we also have many Syrian refugees who live here in Canada, yeah. um, and they have many families back home. So just the the thing that I always encourage um, Canadians to do from the community is just reaching reach out to your community members, people that you know, Syrian families, just to provide them with even emotional support. They just want someone to be there for them, to show support, emotional support, and of course, financial support is is like it's a dire need for Syrians now. Yeah, and it, and it's the easiest and the most effective and the quickest way. Yeah. Uh, Many to, people are asking us if we can support them, like sending clothes. And yeah, yeah. We really encourage everybody to just please send funds because that's what they need. That's what they can um, really support with. And then these grassroots organizations on the ground are able to purchase and buy the resources needed for, the, for these families. Uh, Marwa, I, I hesitate to even ask because it, it it's pales in comparison in terms of importance to the, the humanitarian disaster that's unfolding, but I've read some stories about the historical archaeological sites, the architecture, things like that, the history uh, that's in Syria that's been damaged by this earthquake. Have you heard anything about that? Um, yes, well, I'm, I mean, uh, historically speaking, Damascus is one of the oldest yeah. capital cities in the world. So uh, wh- what's been happening for the past 11 years is, is, of course, devastating. Aleppo as well has been heavily impacted by the earthquake. Um, again, lack of resources, lack of food, lack of shelter. Um, they don't have electricity. I mean, prior to the earthquake, they only um, get electricity two hours a day. Can you imagine living in a cold weather? They have no gas, no fuel, and no cars even support the families who are still under the rubble. So the situation is, is really devastating and, and uh, we're really hoping that through international support we're able to um, uh, send the resources and, and the right uh, support for these families to recover. Yeah, it's so important. Marwa, thank you so much for being here this morning. I really appreciate it. We'll get an update later in the week if that's okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank, thank you, you very much. The Alberta Law Society voted yesterday to reject a motion that called on the body to end its requirement that lawyers in Alberta take mandated continuing education courses. At the center of this motion was a course called The Path, which is a course on Indigenous history and culture. 51 lawyers got together and signed a petition saying they wanted to see this requirement suspended by the Alberta Law Society. 400 signed a counter petition saying, no, 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 we need to keep it in place. It's valuable and it's important. So it went to the society yesterday. They voted to keep it in place. There was almost 5,000 Alberta lawyers that registered to attend the meeting yesterday. It was held virtually. Uh, In the end, 2,609 votes against the motion, 864 votes in favor. So 864 were in favor of ending the education. 2,600 said, no, we want to keep it. Uh, The Law Society said that 3,473 votes were cast. That's how they broke down. So the mandatory 
continuing education, specifically the path will continue for lawyers in the province of Alberta. Joining us now to talk more about the course itself and, and, and this struggle, this fight, is uh, Corin Lightning Earl, the legal director at the University of Alberta's Wakatoan Law and Governance Lodge. I probably said that horribly wrong. Corin, did I, was I even close? You're pretty close. Was I? It's, it's Wakotoan. Wakotoan. I had the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Okay. Um, yeah. This petition that I mentioned, the 400 who signed the petition saying, no, no, we want to keep it in place. That was a motion or a movement, I guess, that, that you started, right? You were behind that petition? It was myself and my four colleagues. Uh, so there was five of us that got together and each of us brings different gifts. And mine is vocal advocacy. <laughs> and, and so we were able to get together and draft the, draft the response, draft a supporting letter, uh, getting and be able to get to our social networks and get the word out. And we were able to kind of mo- mobilize and get things together. And then there was, uh, so able to work with us and then also to work with other small groups of Indigenous lawyers that were mobilizing and seeing where we could really connect people to really just get the word out. So we were able to. In around 48 hours, get four, 400 signatures of active lawyers and 124 of non-active lawyers, professors, uh, students at law, legal organizations that felt strongly. And really it was about creating awareness to let people know about this meeting and really what was behind the petition. Let's, let's just back up and talk about the course itself. It's called The Path. Um, mm-hmm. What is it? What, how long is it? How intensive is it? What is the content of it? So the path is, uh, it was a, it was a free course offered to a gift of the lawyers, really, uh, about the, uh, about the history of Indigenous people in Canada. It takes about five hours to get to go through. You can't fail it. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. and so it was developed by Envision, uh, and they use the path across Canada for different organizations and they tailor it to the organization. And so it was, this version was tailored to the Alberta Law Society to have Alberta based history. Uh, and le- like, and to really target lawyers. And so there's information about the history, uh, what's the treaties about self-government agreements, about First Nations, Inuit, Métis, and the difference between status and nonsense, information with the Indian Act, but also, uh, current things like, um, Colton Bushi case, murdered missing Indigenous women, uh, talks about land. And so it's really, uh, an entry level education to Indigenous people. Uh, in Canada. So it really was, uh, it was just the entry level for people that had no information, no background. Um, okay. A couple of things. First of all, why is it important? Why do you think this education is something that lawyers should be required to take? Well, lawyers, uh, lawyers, we are part of this justice system. We shape this justice system that we work in. The history and treatment of Indigenous peoples in Canada by the legal system, including this profession, warrants the requirements mm-hmm. for those who practice law in Canada to be educated in that history. Like, the justice system wasn't made with Indigenous people. It was made to keep Indigenous people in a box and to keep us on reserves and all of those things. So justice was not kind to us. And the history of Canada in law is not just common law and civil law. And so it's important to recognize that history, respect that history, and educate ourselves on it. We have an obligation to do that. Now, you mentioned something that I think is important. 
this was a program that's done nationally, right? This is not exclusive to Alberta. In fact, it's not even exclusive to Canada. It's done in a lot of places around the world, this kind of continuing education, specifically around Indigenous issues within the justice system, right? I mean, this is not new. No, this is not new. Uh, the path has been around before then. The CBA response, uh, had the path available. The University of Alberta created a free course called Indigenous Canada, which is a much more in-depth course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they had that course and they were, it was offered to people for free as part of reconciliation to get that information. So the inform- this is not new. The, the courts have been saying for years, uh, that pe- lawyers need to know about Indigenous history and bring at, like in criminal law. So case law is there. It's been stated. Um, the TRC, the work that they did was a five-year truth-seeking information, and two of the commissioners were lawyers, one who was a retired judge now. In terms of continuing education, mandatory continuing education for lawyers, are there other courses that are mandatory for lawyers in Alberta that they must? I mean, updating your your education and staying current, it, it happens in most professional societies, but is there other mandatory components within the Law Society of Alberta? Uh, for CPD? Yeah. No. We are the least regulated province okay. when it comes to CPD. One of the least regulated province when it comes to CPD. The only requirement for CPD in Alberta is this free course that lawyers have 18 months to do. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, so there's no other mandated, um, I don't know, other visible minorities, sexual orientation, anything like that. It's just Indigenous that is the mandatory education component. Yes. Again, yeah. if you want to become a lawyer, like if you want to have an article student, you have to take a principal course. It's $125. Yeah. If you yeah. want to operate a trust account, you have to take, like there's requirements under the trust accounting rules. But other than that, there's, you have to take CPLED to become a lawyer. When you take a look at the way this whole thing happened and the way that it unfolded, it started with 51 uh, signing the petition. There was 864 votes in favor, but overwhelmingly, you know, 400 signed the counter petition. More than 2,600 voted saying, no, 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 this education is valuable to us as lawyers. That's got to be gratifying, right? Yeah, it's not every day we get to win. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so today we got, yesterday we got a win and it, and it feels good. Outside my office during that call, during that two hour session, I was 15 law students, 15 indigenous law students outside my office in our lobby. Uh, they were having, me- having their own meeting about, for their, uh, student organization, but they were eagerly waiting. They'd come in and be like, what's it now? What's going on now? And so this for them shows that this practice of law, this space is a, values them, values their history, mm-hmm. values their identity, and that it is we are creating safe places for people. And we are creating space for Indigenous people, not just in all areas, but in law, where it's really important. Where if I walk into a courtroom, people still think I'm lost. <laughs> they don't think I'm there being the lawyer. So it's really important and valuable, especially when I think about those students and how they were, it was like waiting for these results. That could really have an effect on why do they continue in law school? Yeah. There's an interesting question on the text line, and it's something I never thought of. Um, you know, when we're talking about the justice system, it makes perfect sense. I mean, I understand exactly why this course is important. But somebody's saying, well, what about if you're a real estate lawyer? You're never involved in criminal justice or anything like that. Do they require this course? And is there value to them in taking a course like this as well? There is value. Everybody should be taking the sure. course. Because... 
if we're interacting with Indigenous people, it's not, we don't just interact with Indigenous people are not just people of poverty. That's what, and we are strong sovereign nations. And guess what? I have, I'm a homeowner. I would like a realtor that understood yeah, my yeah. thing. I, what if I want to, what if a, a band wants to purchase some, some land or a major organization wants to expand their settlement? So we need lawyers in all aspects of law to understand Indigenous history, to understand the nuances of the Indian Act and Métis legislation and, and self-government agreements. Uh, because you can, we, we write wills, we, <laughs> we have banks, we buy houses, we have children, we, all of these things that we encounter, we have to, we, it's important that everybody understands and has a basic understanding. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I'm glad I asked the question and uh, your answer cleared it up perfectly for me. Corin, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. This is going to be an interesting conversation, I think. Um, you know, we've covered many times here on the show the issues around social media and our government's efforts to try and get their arms around it and come up with some sort of, you know, there, there's legislation that's being proposed to try and deal with some of the issues they've identified with social media platforms. They've talked a lot about misinformation, you know, things like that. Uh, TikTok is another animal altogether. I mean, there's several governments in the United States even where, you know, government officials aren't even allowed to have TikTok because of concerns over security. I mean, it's owned by the Chinese government. So um, there's a lot of issues around that as well. So um, there's a number of different reasons that the government has raised concerns and publicly talked about the issues that they have around social media. But <laughs> despite those concerns, they're continuing to spend a lot of money on advertising on those very same social media platforms. Now, of course, the argument is, well, you got to. I mean, you got to. It's interesting because it's it's counterproductive, isn't it? Let's get into it. We're going to chat with Vas Bednar, a senior fellow, the Center for International Governance Innovation and the executive director of McMaster University's Master of Public Policy in Digital Society program. Vas, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate being here today. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, to start, you know, it, it, obviously on the surface, it's it's very contradictory, but let's just talk about what the numbers and, and what exactly we're talking about. It's about just over $20 million, right? It's just over $20 million on the social media expenditure portion. So that's where you're lumping together, as you mentioned, you know, TikTok, but also Twitter, Snapchat, chat, LinkedIn, and my favorite, which is Pinterest, actually. Really? Um, you use Pinterest? Of course. I didn't even know it was still a thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Everything's a mood board. Everything's a mood board. <laughs> um, but when you when you look at digital media overall... So that includes social media, but then things like search engine marketing, right? And yeah. uh, this, it's called display programmatic. I mean, having to do with when people are watching videos and stuff, that number goes up quite a bit. And it gets us to $64 million, which is just under half of the total advertising spend uh, last year, which is $140.8 million. So. You know, yes, yeah. social media itself is a is a tiny subset, but my my view is like a dollar's a dollar and it's kind of a values conversation. Should the government be on social right. media? Sure. We should be, you know, where people are and if people want to follow the government or look at a key message, an official document from the government, they should be able to do that. But should the government pay to promote their posts? I think that's a different 
conversation because you start to sort of, you know, you're implicitly supporting the platform with taxpayer dollars while you're trying to bring forward new privacy legislation, new competition legislation, uh, <laughs> other kind of forms of accountability. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I just can't think of another instance where the government is investing in companies that they're trying to regulate at the very same time. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's that disconnect where you've got all kinds of issues that you've raised about these platforms at the same time you're funding them through the back door. So, so what's the solution then, Bass? I mean, that's the thing, because if you're the government, you, you, you want to communicate with people where they are, as you said, and we know mm-hmm. overwhelmingly um, Canadians are on these social media platforms. I mean, I, I, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't in a way. In a way. I mean, I've been watching uh, what's going on in the U.S. and it's a kind of very knee-jerk, geopolitical-fueled uh, resistance, newfound resistance to TikTok, right? Some university campuses are, are trying to ban TikTok. It's being banned from government devices unless it's for research, et cetera. But instead of, I guess my, my bigger point is like, instead of Canada just mirroring that, because we're often, we replicate a lot, we, we ape and that's okay, or mimic, apologies. We should just say we're not going to spend money advertising on social media platforms mm-hmm. unless or until, you know, we've completed our, our digital accountability kind of broader agenda. I think that's actually pretty provocative and the other thing is there's a whole bunch of research that basically shows that targeted online advertising just doesn't even work so one has to wonder is this going against our values and also wasting money because we think we're achieving something that we just aren't right exactly now i mean some of these platforms are better than others or less bad right i mean (laughs) they've all got issues but i mean when we talk about tiktok uh, that's an entirely different animal altogether i mean there are degrees of awfulness correct um i think i think in a u.s context they're very interested in positioning tiktok as a sort of quote-unquote other because it is a chinese owned app but again from a policy intervention standpoint there's you know, a lot we can do with the instruments we have to make all sorts of social media platforms healthier, more fair places to be. It's a really interesting discussion. I imagine the government's wrestled with it at some point. And I, I, it's like you say, I don't know if if there's a way around it because that's where you need to be. But yeah, maybe it's just you don't pay the extra. You just, you use the platform like everybody else, but you don't actually fund them. I guess that that might sort of deal with some of the issues. It it might. I mean, I wonder, you know, if we weren't paying for advertising on social media, would we have calls from people to say, hey, I want to see that tweet promoted in my feed? Yeah, right. Or we need, you know, we need to promote. What's the counterfactual there? We also have this, uh, the Treasury Board Secretariat, so TBS, has a an official policy directive on marketing, et cetera. And there's a little clause in there that says, you know, it has to be cost effective. Well, what's the comparatively the cheapest way to advertise in this day and age? It's social media. Yes. When you were saying how TikTok's a little bit different, TikTok undercuts rivals on the cost of ads. It's actually the cheapest possible place to be. So you're actually compliant with that policy if you're advertising your new... <laughs> Uh, new policy or new consultation paper on TikTok. But again, what are we actually accomplishing? And could we have just more of a conversation about about those values? 
yeah, that's what I'm trying to trying to help happen, and you're helping me do it. Well, but you know what? And we've talked about this before. It, it's always it's always after the fact. That's that's the problem that we have. Because once this technology mm-hmm. is unleashed, now you're trying to wrestle with all these big questions that you're asking, which are great. Um, and it's sort of we're so far down the road. I it's really hard to to come up with something after the fact. I think it can be hard to come up with something after the fact, but I mean, we, it's, it's indulgent to call it policymaking. And I count myself among a policymaker, <laughs> right? A lot of what we do as practitioners is actually tinkering, right? Yeah. Or diffusion. So I'm always looking for ways for Canada to be the leader that I think we deserve to be so that other, other countries, other jurisdictions could look at us and say, Hey, that was actually really powerful. What Canada did. Maybe we, shouldn't invest taxpayer dollars on these mm-hmm. platforms as we're bringing forward that accountability agenda. It's simple, and I think it's meaningful and speaks volumes. And I actually think people would chat about it online and maybe promote the policy without us having to spend spend a dollar there. Well, they do. You're absolutely right. The announcement doesn't necessarily have to be there. The reaction always is. Uh, very, very, uh, very good points, Vass. Thanks so much for being here, as always. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.